I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time. We knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. I've spent a lot of time in a lot of stadiums on a lot of campuses covering college football games. Many of them were alongside Dennis Dodd. He taught me a lot and became a good friend along the way. He's been writing about the sport and all of its passion and craziness since 1984, the last 23 of those years for CBS Sports. Dennis probably hears marching bands in his sleep. He definitely has a lot of stories to tell. Can't wait to hear them. Welcome to our show, Dennis. Hey, glad to be here, Todd. It's uh, It's been great to be here, and I'm glad you're doing this. This, this is really fun. Well, thanks a lot. I uh, We've known each other a long time, probably since the late 90s at least. I mean, you've been writing for CBS Sports. I mean, you've been... Well, since 98, you've, you've been cashing more checks than Cronkite at CBS. <laughs> yeah, ni- ni- February of 98. So this is 23 years? Yeah, 23. Wow, that's amazing. And then before that, you were a newspaper guy. We'll get into that because here's the thing. I want to clear something up at the start. I want to be right up front with this. I have sources that tell me something that I want to confirm with you, that you were part of killing two newspapers. Is that oh, right? I, yeah, I was uh, I was typhoid Mary there for a while. Everywhere I went, um, papers passed away. The, the late, great St. Louis Sun in 89, 90, it lasted exactly nine months. And then uh, and then the, the National, which I came in midstream, that was, a lot of people remember that. It was a- Yeah, great publication. Yeah, yeah. National Sports Newspaper. Uh, and it- died of natural causes uh, shortly after I joined. I think I, was, I think it was about a year and a half. You've been covering college football for 37 years, I think, 23 in the, for uh, CBS yeah. Sports, you know, the internet, because you were ahead of the game there, too. You were joining that internet wave, too. You were, <laughs> you were an entrepreneur. <laughs> but when you started in the, in the early 80s, it was, it was a different sport, wasn't it, college football? It wasn't what we think of today. It was much more of a regional sport. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it really changed with um, the eight, 1984 Supreme Court decision that deregulated college football television. You you probably have seen some of it. It's complicated, but it's not complicated. Uh, on the ESPN does the uh, 150th anniversary thing that kind of runs in rotation now on ESPN two. It seems. Uh, yeah, it, it very much was. Uh, it was it was such a regional sport that the big eight was located in an old office building in uh, in Kansas City on Baltimore and we would go up to the office every Monday for the conference call you could listen in but it was more of a social thing so is this, is this with the coaches the conference this call? is with the coaches this is and they still uh, conferences still do this today some of them and you would stand around one of those giant mics not mic but speakers and you would be able to ask questions to the coaches as they called in. Um, but then we all, we also ate lunch with the staff. They brought, they'd bring in pizza or something like that. Well, what, sports writers taking free food? Are you serious? Sports writers taking free food, absolutely. <laughs> uh, and, but it, to, the, to my point, it was more, it was better that way to craft a story to be socially involved with people, if you were working on a story, the commissioner's right there. Um, you could ask coaches anything you, you wanted. And back then, 
there was more of a, uh, you know, intermingling of the two sides where it wasn't just Dennis Dodd asking a question on a speakerphone. Oh, I remember him. He was here last August for the big eight Skyriders, which we, I know you wanted to touch on that, but that's, we used to do that. Go by bus uh, and one plane trip to Colorado to all eight schools to get our preseason stuff. Just load up. So, so explain that to us. What, what do you mean by big eight Skyriders? So this is like in August uh, preseason? Yeah, this was a, about a 10-day affair where those who paid, uh, the, the big eight provided the bus, uh, and you had to pay for, you know, pay for room and board and whatever, bring, you know, the big eight provided back then provided, uh, some, uh, you know, some st- stipend of Coors Light or whatever, you know, whatever you wanted in a giant, Shh, don't, don't tell the in editors <laughs> in a giant, in a giant cooler that would be tapped into, uh, about 7 AM when we loaded up to travel every day. Um, and we, and we would just go, like I said, the, the only plane trip was to Colorado. I think we first trying to remember Kansas state, you have, you have to think of the geography, Kansas City to Kansas, Kansas State, Iowa State, Nebraska, and then straight down from Nebraska to Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, and then uh, fly out to Colorado and then home. I think, I think that's that's the way I recall it. But the camaraderie. Um, so this is a busload of sports riders barreling around sports, the country. Yeah, <laughs> it was. It was a uh, it was gonzo journalism at its finest. Uh, <laughs> Hunter, Hunter Thompson would have loved this place. Um, so what was it like on the bus? A bunch of sports riders going around to different schools for uh, ten days. Yeah, how, how much money you got? How much money can you lose playing cards? Um, <laughs> yeah. And again, I wasn't part of this, but there were guys who started loading up at seven in the morning, drinking, and just kept going all day. I mean, I I couldn't do it then. I couldn't do it now. Now, yeah, did we? Did we get off the rails? Absolutely. But the difference was that at the time, the leagues and the schools felt like they needed publicity. Yeah. So they would invite you to come to them. Yeah. Now you have national media days and you have to go to them. And you know what I mean? In terms of like, it's, it's kind of a reversal, right? Yeah. And now it's like, you come to us on our terms. Then it was, Hey, get on this bus and, and come on in and we'll, we'll set you up with all the interviews you need. Yeah, that and that was it, and it was so intimate. I can, I clearly remember um, uh, Pat Jones, the old Oklahoma State coach, would just sit at a table, and and he just he just sucked on cigarettes like they were, you know, like they were candy, and he would sit there and just, just he can talk anyway. He had his own radio show for years in Oklahoma City, um, but just tell you everything. Uh, Tom Osborne would get up there. Tom Osborne was famous for getting up at a podium and reading every player's name and saying something about him. I mean, it would put... Every player. Yeah, it would it would put a large mammal to sleep. Every player on the <laughs> roster. Oh, this guy, his parents are nice. And, you know, it's like you'd go, Tom, please. And what he was doing was filibustering so he wouldn't have to answer questions. I mean, he, he, he wouldn't be the first one famous for that, but that's what he was doing. Yeah, those Nebraska um, teams, they would have like 900 walk-on players too, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if he got into that, but he got <laughs> he got pretty deep into the too deep. And so guys you would never see play, guys, you know, all we wanted to know about was Turner Gill at that point. But um, and, and Barry Switzer was great. Barry Switzer was so accommodating, so colorful. 
Well, I, that's, still, I still miss them to this day, yeah. That's what I want to really get into is when you think about the 80s, um, you think about Oklahoma and Barry Switzer. I mean, yeah. you, had, you had Miami and the U. That was going on. That was a national thing, especially starting in the early 80s. But Switzer in the mid-80s with those Oklahoma Sooner teams, you were around that. Tell us a little about, about what it was like to be with uh, the Sooners in those days. It was great. It was like being – it was like following a – you know, a rock band. Um, cause I mean, I don't have to tell you, you know, it, it was a outgoing loosey goosey sort of program that was really fun to cover until, you know, the end when they tagged, uh, Switzer with a bunch of, uh, you know, a bunch of NCA violations. Charles Thompson, Appeared on the cover of Sports Illustrated in an orange jumpsuit. Yeah, that's not um, good. When that's not that good for your program. Tough. No. When you're starting quarterback selling cocaine, that's not good. No, but, that's not a good thing. But I. But those are the Boz years. Uh, slightly before that. Yeah, Brian Bosworth. If, pe- yeah. if people don't know him, you know he had he had he was well maybe the first guy to dye his hair, and he would dye it red, white, and blue, and shave things into the side of his skull. You know, anyway, he was a great college player. That this. This goes back to the old access days when you could really get up close and personal with people. Um, you know, I wanted to do a big Boz story, and I went down there, and they said, oh, here, yeah, he said, come over to his dorm. Really? Oh, okay, yeah, there was no no SID escorting uh-huh. me. Or, and I walk in there. and You're in the Boz's dorm. In Boz's, in Boz's room, in his dorm room, his room. You know, he's got his, his uh, roommate wasn't there, roommates, but he was. And it was what you would typically think of a college male's dorm room would look like, you know, messy stuff all over the place, except this was, you know, at the time, arguably the best player, best defender in the country. And he, you know, I I don't remember exactly the story, but I think the the quotes were pretty colorful. He'd come from, he'd come from Plano, Texas, which is a upscale suburb of Dallas. And, you know, how, how Barry got him there. Barry could charm the husk off corn as far, (laughs) far as a recruiter. And he really related to the African-American players, because you, Todd, you remember his book, Bootlegger's Boy. Right. Um, he was in, you know, he was in a bad situation. I think his grandmother shot his grandfather for some reason. I mean, that, that that's the kind of family he came from in Arkansas. So it was, it was, uh, so he related to a, a lot of those um, black players who didn't come from, from much. Um, mm-hmm. And that's how they built, look, that, the 80s were still a time when the black athlete was still, you know, coming to prominence in, in college athletics because the, the Deep South and some other schools had stiff-armed them for so long. Now, obviously, in the pros, that wasn't the case at that point. But in the college, it was still being infiltrated or still being uh, integrated, frankly. Right, right. Um, it's amazing to think players. that, right? It's not that yeah. long ago. but No. Yeah, yeah. Switzer, I mean, you said he could charm the – the husk off yeah. the corn. What what was he just like just being around? Was he just entertaining? Yeah, he was great. Um, I I called him in 2011 when Penn State got the the Sandusky penalties because it, it was like at the, at the the day it happened, it was like is Penn State going to be able to field a football team? And in typical Barry Switzer fashion, I, this was my go to quote at the time. He said they're going to have to start drop down to FCS. <laughs> goes, they're gonna have to go one double A, and I said, I said, okay, I'll use that. That's perfect. At, at that point, nobody really knew they were taking away four four years of bowl games, but I clearly remember him. Um, 
this is in the maybe the 2003 uh, Big 12 championship game in, in uh, Penn, uh, I'm sorry, Kansas State was playing Oklahoma at Arrowhead Stadium. The night before, they had a big reception, big party at, uh, at uh, Union Station, which is a, an old, old train station. A lot of cities have them that have been repurposed. It was really, really nice. Um, and he was there, I, I believe, in a mink coat <laughs> with Tony Casillas, who was the old defensive lineman, right. America defensive lineman who, right. who used to play for him. And we just sat around, and he held court for a period of hours. This is the night before the game. Night before the game. Um, 2000, I want to say 2003, because that was K-State's only Big 12 championship. Well, they won that game. Well, I had an NCAA um, person, let's just say he was a former college official. Mm-hmm. Um, he once told me that he knocked on Switzer's door because he had to track him down for something. And when Barry opened the door, Barry was stark naked. <laughs> I, I, I believe that. I have no doubt that happened. <laughs> he also said that Barry apparently had like a safe underneath his, underneath his desk in his office where he kept cash from selling all the tickets. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it was, Barry, Barry was the Wild West, right? Oh, it, it, was, it was absolutely the Wild West. And that's what they got him on. It was, it was recruiting violations in 89 and, and – <laughs> players brandishing guns off the porches of the dorm rooms and he finally i think he was finally given the option of resigning in 89 and that that's where it all changed for oklahoma i mean they bring in they bring in gary gibbs who was kind of a uh, anonymous assistant and he won 67 percent of his games but he was run out of town in about three or four years and then they got john blake the immortal John Blake, who just passed away here the last few months. Yeah, bless his soul, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, what are they? What was his name? Doctor something. It was he. It was the money man. But anyway, they had the worst three year run uh, as him as head coach in the history of uh, of Oklahoma football, whatever it is, one hundred and twenty years. Uh, and then they hired a guy named Bob Stoops. So things yeah. things went well from there. But but Switzer will never be forgotten. Yeah, I mean those days with the Boz and just. You know, they were running up score. Switzer used to say, let's hang hang half a hundred on these guys. Yep. You know, like 50 points. It was nothing. I mean, there was games where they were just totally out of control, right? I mean, weren't you at a game once where the Boz and, and somebody else, like, yeah. you know, they just shut it down early in the game? They just Yeah, back then, Kansas State was beyond bad. I mean, if you don't know the history of college football, for a long time, Kansas State had the most losses in college football history. And this is in the 80s. And we covered at the Kansas City Star, we covered Missouri, Kansas, and Kansas State, as well as the Big Eight. We were kind of the flagship paper of the Big Eight because we because the conference office was there. And so I would, you know, I was at a, a Kansas State-Oklahoma game one time where it, it, this beyond bad uh, Kansas State team, they, they may have given up 50 at halftime or something in and Switzer called off the dogs, and at halftime, I clearly remember, or maybe at some point in the third quarter, I clearly remember uh, Bosworth and Jamel Holloway, the quarterback, had removed their pads and were sitting on the bench and somehow had ordered hot dogs from a vendor in the stands. <laughs> we're, eating, we're eating hot dogs like a fan or something. On the, on the bench? Yeah, all, <laughs> during the game. 
And that, oh. that's the way that's the way they ran. It was unbelievable. Well, Jamil Holloway, I have a I had an encounter with Jamil when I was in 1988 yeah. when I first got out of college. I was interning at the Los Angeles Times, and Jamil was from Inglewood, you know, in mm-hmm. in L.A., and he was rehabbing from a knee injury. And so they said, you know, why don't you just, it's the summertime, let's catch up with Jamil and see how his rehab's going. So so I arranged a call, and he was great, and he said, come on down. He gave me his home address in uh, Inglewood. So, I, you know, I'm a little young guy driving down the Harbor Freeway to get to Inglewood. I don't know where I'm going. I go to this house, the address, I knock on the door, and this old man answers it. And I said, is Jamil here? And the old man says, ain't no Jamil here. And I'm like, oh, okay, all right. This was the right address. So I got back in my car and I'm driving back towards downtown LA and I'm thinking to myself, I, I can't go back to the office with no story. They'll fire me. You know, I'm a young kid from Kentucky. They, you know, the LA Times doesn't have time to put up with something. They can't can't come through with a story. So I turned around and I drove back to the same house and I knocked on the door and the same old guy opened it and down the hallway was Jamil and he peeked his head out and he goes, I'm just messing with you. Come on in. <laughs> <laughs> it, it pays to be persistent. Yeah, yeah. And, then I, and then I had to get a hold of Switzer and I kept trying to line it up through the the PR person out in, uh, in Oklahoma, and I just couldn't get him, couldn't get him, couldn't get him. So finally, an older guy at the LA Times, they had this Rolodex that was like unbelievable. And he said, here, here's this number. Call on like, I don't know, Tuesday at seven o'clock and you'll get Barry. And it was a number to a bar. <laughs> and I called the number at the exact time and the and the barkeep got Barry Switzer on the phone for me, and I got my quotes. I no, mean, he got, that's he, great. He got on the phone. He's like, "We got to make this quick." Yeah, <laughs> but oh, I got but God. I got the story because that was the kind of you know you could track down Barry Switzer in a bar, and uh, he would give you his, the quotes that you needed. I have there one other one like that. Um, I was trying to get Tyrone Matthew during his honey badger days at LSU, and I went to his house. I found out where he lived, and like you, banged on the door, um, and and no answer. So I ended up going to his high school to get stories from there. And he's from St. Augustine, which is a famous high school in New Orleans from the, from the seventh war, in the seventh ward. Um, won championships. So many players, NFL players have come from there. And I don't know who, the coach maybe walked me up. He told me what the conditions were. And they, they practiced at, and this is one of the you know, best schools in the state, in the country, really. They practice at a city park, which was up the street from the school. Um, and on the way, it was about, a, I don't know, a block or two away. You walk down the street, and there are literally ne- needles in the gutter on the side of the road. Mm. I mean, this is the kind of neighborhood we're talking about. And so he, he described to me how practice went. And this was like an overgrown, the field wasn't lined. It was overgrown. They kicked, into a fen- kicked field goals into a fence. It was really high. And the dope dealers, the drug dealers would come to practice to watch. And they, you know, just they were supporting the local kids. They weren't doing anything illegal. Mm. But clearly they were the 'er ne'er-do-wells. And there would be gunshots um, and everybody would freeze. And it was described to me. Now, the guys would go, no, okay, go ahead. They they knew what was happening. That's okay. If it was really bad uh, and the and they would hear gunshots and it got close, they would tell them to get down. Wow. You know, they knew that was real because it wasn't, wasn't exactly police shooting at the suspect. It was people shooting at each other. And they would say, get down. And they would pause and they would get back up and finish practice. 
Wow. Um, so that's the kind of that's the kind of world he grew up in there. Wow. Yeah, the background with some of these folks were, you know, where they where they came from, what they had to overcome and, yeah. and then achieve is is just amazing. Hey there, and welcome to the Joy of Paddle podcast, hosted by me, Minter Dial, a veteran of the paddle tennis world, and sponsored by Paddle 1969. Whether you're a paddle tennis aficionado, just beginning, or have never even heard of paddle, or Padel, as it's called in North America. This is an exhilarating new show that delves into the captivating stories of notable paddle personalities worldwide. In its inaugural season, you'll be treated to exclusive anecdotes, valuable tips, life lessons, and humorous moments shared by esteemed professional paddle players, industry insiders, and passionate paddle enthusiasts. With each season aligning with the Pro Tour, you can anticipate two engaging episodes per month. The Joy of Paddle Podcast is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, where you can find other great shows in a number of categories, such as sports, health and wellness, true crime, and fiction. To find out more about Evergreen Podcasts, go to www.evergreenpodcast.com. Vamos! The late 80s, uh, you know, College football, again, still regional. I mean, a guy like Bobby Bowden at Florida State, I mean, they used to have this thing called Breakfast with Bobby. Mm-hmm. Um, you, had, you were at some of those, weren't you? What, yeah. was that, what was that like? Yeah, this is this is back in the day um, when he had it rolling. And they, they would have a home game on Saturday, and after every home game, he would hold court at a, uh, oh, kind of a conference room at a hotel. At that point, I think it was a Holiday Inn near near campus. And they would they would have uh, kind of a continental breakfast, and anybody who wanted to come could come. It was mostly for the beat writers because we weren't there. The national guys weren't there all the time. And you could ask anything you wanted, and it went on for an hour or two. And he really seemed to enjoy it. Uh, Bobby's, Bobby Bowden's a saint. I mean, there's a reason they call him St. Bobby. He was great with the writers. Yeah, he was, uh, yeah. He was fantastic. Yeah. And that was... And something I'll never forget, because that goes back to the old days of the open locker room, which we'll never see again uh, with some of these schools. Miami and UCLA, I think, were the last ones to have open locker rooms. But Bobby, Bobby's fantastic. What do you mean by open locker rooms for those who don't, you know, don't know what that means? <laughs> well, to, to, after each game, to gather our stories, we would go down into the locker rooms uh, where the players were you know, coming after the game, whether it's baseball, football. Uh, basketball, that was that was our office. That was their office, but that's where we applied our trade. And it was so useful because you would get the players still in the moment, still emotional, whether it was bad or good, right after the field. And that's where you got, I think, some of the greatest writing, not just sports writing, some of the best writing in American history comes from those encounters. Whether, again, whether it was after college football game, NFL, baseball, now everything's so regimented. And obviously these days it's on Zoom. But it, that, that's what was so good. These guys were still, they were still pissed off about something. Um, you know, they, they might have been pissed off at you. Mm-hmm. And because in baseball, you had to deal with these guys every day. You know that. Yeah, and yeah. sometimes you don't want to see, see that person. You don't want to talk to them. Mm-hmm. And it's, re- it's really, really hard. I, I remember the time in 84, I think there had been federal 
drug charges filed against the, the Kansas City Royals or a number of players involved. And it had to do with cocaine. One of their players, Willie Mays Akins, went to jail for, for a bunch of years for it. And the story had just broken in the Kansas City Star and every outlet in the city was there. And they opened the locker room before the game, which you typically do. But uh, I'll always give them credit for doing that. They made those players face the music. Now, did they say much? No. Were they ashamed? Yes. But they sat there and answered every question. And I'll never forget. I'll never forget that scene walking in there. And it was like going into a wake because we knew what had happened. They knew what had happened. Uh, neither party necessarily wanted to be there. But we had to be, uh, you know, to, to try to do the story. Well, Dennis, it seems like there was always a lot of emotion swirling around in Big 8, which is now Big 12 country. Uh, I think you were there a couple years after Tuxedo Tony set the record. A couple years later, Colorado was hosting uh, the Miami Hurricanes, and <laughs> you were there for quite a game. Uh, tell us a little bit about the brawl that broke out that day, um, I think towards the end of the first half. Yeah, it was, uh, it was Miami, Colorado, and it was a really a chance. It was 93. And Miami had won its last championship in 91, so they were still good. And Oh, yeah. they. I, I mean, they had Ray Lewis, Warren yeah. Sapp, that guy called The Rock. You know that guy? He yeah, didn't play guy, a lot, but Dwayne, but he went on to be, Dwayne Johnson went on to be The Rock. But they had Sapp and Lewis. They had some great players. And Colorado was still powerful, still you know at the front of the Big Eight. And it was the national game of the day, and I was there – I may have been then for the Omaha World Herald. I can't remember it's so back, for, so far back. But um, a brawl broke out, and I think we all saw this: the Tulsa-Mississippi State brawl mm -hmm. uh, for the bowl game in, in January, whatever it was. This made that look like a child's play. I mean, it was just a full-on, you know, everything goes. It goes into the stands. Jammy German, who was an old receiver for Miami somehow got into the stands and ripped a pair of binoculars off somebody's neck and were twirling, using the cord and twirling them around his head, above his head, like he was an Argentinian cowboy, you know, <laughs> with, with those bolo things or whatever you call them. <laughs> and we're just sitting there elbowing each other going, I can't believe this is happening. I mean, I was ready for the, for the police to come on. Well, it went on for like 11 minutes. Yeah, it did. It did. It went on forever. And so at the end, Colorado has a chance to win. They're driving. They're going to score, and they're inside the red zone. They're going to beat Miami at home. And out of nowhere, there's a flag for, I never forget this, hands to the face by an offensive lineman. How often have you seen that ever? <laughs> I mean, it was so such a ticky-tack call. I mean, you're going to call that. These guys put their hands in their face on every yeah. play, both sides. 11-minute <laughs> brawl with 12 ejections, and, and now you're going to get call, hands to the face. That. Yeah, that's, that, and that was, the, that was Bill McCartney. Bill McCartney was a, was a treasure, by the way. He was – people may, may not have agreed with him, some of his views politically or socially, but, you know, he was a guy that – um, was just one of a kind. Um, you know, I remember Sal and Nessie, the quarterback, who got his daughter pregnant. Oh, yeah. And you remember that? And mm. ended up being a great player and led them to a championship and then died, subsequently died of cancer. Mm. I mean, it, was, it was tragic. Those Colorado teams were great because they had a swagger. But that's why I go back with everybody's talking about Eric the Enemy. With the Chiefs not getting a job, their offensive coordinator, I go back to him where 
uh, I think it was 91 on freezing rain at Nebraska, back when Nebraska and Colorado were, were sworn enemies. And I think uh, Nebraska was leading something like 12 to nothing going into the fourth quarter. Yet no way Colorado does this. They score four times in in the fourth quarter and win 27 to 12. And Eric Bieniemy has like three or four touchdowns. It just, everything changed. Now they couldn't sustain it for the long term, but at that moment, and that, I'm trying to remember, 90, they shared the title with Georgia and Georgia, with Georgia Tech, right? I think mm-hmm. that's right. I think so, yeah. This might've been 91 where they won another big eight title, but that was amazing back then. So Nebraska, you bring out the Cornhuskers. I mean, we talked some <laughs> Oklahoma in the eighties with, with Switzer and the Boz. Tom Osborne in Nebraska, I mean, he had a career that went from like 73 to 97, but really it was in the 90s that he took it to, as they say, the next level. Um, what was what was it like with the Cornhuskers when, when Osborne had it humming there in the 90s? Well, you remember, they, they dominated them in Oklahoma, dominated the 80s. I think Oklahoma, Switzer eventually won more of those matchups with Osborne, but in 83, Nebraska had still one of the best college teams I've ever seen, the, the scoring machine. Um, that was the schedule poster. I'll never forget that. They called them the scoring machine. They're averaging over 50 points a game and with Turner Gill and some of these guys on, on defense. And they, they went to Miami for the Orange Bowl and lost that game where Osborne decided to go for two. Remember right. that? Yep. And, and they lose 31-30, and that launches the, the Miami dynasty. Well, you know, as the years went on, you never knew if Osborne would get a shot, you know, to, to win another national championship. And it, his days were getting numbered as you got into the mid and late 90s. Uh, they started winning championships with a guy named Scott Frost, who had gone to, he was a native son from, I think, Wood River, Nebraska. I want to say that's it. Uh, but went to Stanford. You know, he was that good and that smart, but had played safety. And for his first two years at Stanford, and for whatever reason, you know, maybe he saw a chance to play quarterback at Nebraska, came back home and led Nebraska to, uh, to those championships. They won three in four years. He was partially responsible for that uh, to the point that that one Fiesta Bowl, probably the most dominating performance you'll ever see in a championship game setting. Uh, 63-28 over Steve Spurrier's Florida team. Yeah, the old ball and coach. He took it on. The old he ball took coach. one there. <laughs> and, and, and Tommy Frazier, I think, underrated in the history of college football, the original, you know, dual-threat quarterback, basically a, a, a speedster tailback who played quarterback. Not not a great thrower, but, look, didn't have to be. Seemed like he was 6-6, and it was the, the fire starter on that team, and and Osborne's time ended in uh, in '97 when he right. got a parting gift from uh, from the uh, from the AP voters. I believe it was AP, wasn't it? Yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. the coach. Well, the coaches. coaches the, co- the coaches yeah. poll. Yeah, yeah was, of course it was a coaches poll. Yeah. Where Michigan won uh, the AP title and uh, Nebraska won. Uh, I think Osborne had you know indicated or announced that this was his final year and he was retiring. Yeah. And a lot of people thought they didn't deserve it. The Michigan people to this day are are upset that they had to share that title. But look, right. a championship is a championship. Right. What was Osborne like for a writer to deal with? Uh, like cracking a code. It was it was hard. He, his his personality is kind of dry. 
but everything he said had meaning because of who he was and what he did. And so if you got him, well, I shouldn't say it. If you got him one-on-one, he wasn't much different than he was in a group setting. But because he, he had that Midwestern sort of ethic and, um, I guess, persona to him, where, like, if he wasn't a football coach, he'd be, you know, running a 400-acre farm in, in western, western Nebraska. You know, very tight-lipped, uh, didn't like to give out information. Uh, but I think his players spoke for him more than he did. I'm not saying he's a bad person. He just wasn't very exciting. We all know coaches like that. Yeah, he wasn't. Um, he wasn't like Switzer, right? Yeah, so, right. He was, and yeah. that's what made that rivalry so good. I, one time, Switzer dropped into, and I don't know what Switzer was doing in town, but Osborne was doing his coach's show on a Monday or Tuesday, and he was in a studio, and Switzer, cra- Switzer may have been in town speaking in Lincoln, and he crashes the show uh, <laughs> while they're taping it, and they just went, they went, they just went with it. Like he brought food onto the set, and like that was. That was one of the greatest coaches shows ever, but he 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 represented that that Nebraska stoicism, um, square jawed, um, you know, strength, and and his team showed it. You know, his that that eye option, which is a precursor to a lot of things. You know, you see now a lot of the concepts you see now um, was unstoppable, and some of those great defenders. You know, and now they're trying to get back to that, and it just seems like a long, long way back from uh, from where Tom Osborne was. Well, you mentioned the '97 title that um, you know the Cornhuskers were voted co-national mm-hmm. champions, um, and it was Osborne's last year. But really, there was a game that year that the Cornhuskers probably should have lost. That you were at the flea, <laughs> the, the flea kicker, as it is yeah. known. I mean, that just shows you how how tenuous it is to win a championship. You know, you have to have a crazy play sometimes. Uh, tell us a little bit about the flea kicker. Yeah, and that was, that was November 7th, I believe, 1997, because I covered the game. And Missouri was, I think I said before, they, they went 13 or 14 years without a bowl. And under uh, Larry Smith, they were kind of emerging. They were getting better. And this was seen as kind of a showdown. It was a, I want to say it was a primetime game on ABC because Brent Musburger did the game. I've seen the replays a million times. And Missouri led, or the game was tied for most of the game. And uh, Corby Jones, who was a great, one of the great Missouri players, not a great passer as a quarterback, was on fire that day. Hit big play after big play. Uh, Nebraska didn't seem to have an answer. Missouri's leading by seven late. In Nebraska, their last possession, this is it, do or die, number one in the country. A drive down, fourth down, uh, Scott Frost throws a pass to uh, to one of the players, and he is, he is in no position to catch it. He's falling down, but as he's falling down, he, he inadvertently kicks it, and it, the ball keeps floating up in the air. And so the, the slot receiver at the time, Matt Davison, caught it and tied the game. Uh, and Nebraska won in overtime um, to the point that when the ball was hit in the end zone, the Missouri fans had, had stormed the field. They had to get them off the field. And I was at the other end on the sideline watching, and I said, you know what? I don't think this is over because they were shooing these people away. I saw the ball go up in the air, and I thought, well, that's it. Missouri's won. And not only that, uh, not only – 
you know, the ball's up in the air, then he caught it, and they had to get the people off the field. And the upshot of it, the, the fallout from the game was that uh, that was the first time, and to my knowledge, only time, a number one team dropped from that post after winning, and the losing team actually got into the top 25. You can go look it up. Missouri lost the game and got into the top 25 because of the effort they put forth. So people point to that and say, hey, should, you know, that's why a big reason why Osborne shouldn't have gotten that parting gift from the uh, from the coaches. But that was one of the that was one of the greatest ones I've seen. That that game uh, were the two or three biggest events, I guess, games I've covered. The other one was 2012 Missouri Kansas basketball. Missouri's last game in the Big 12. Uh, they had said they were going to the SEC, and this was the last game between these two bitter rivals in basketball. And Missouri led by as many as 19. It was on national TV. Um, second half, up by 19. Vernon Lundquist doing the game. And Kansas wins in overtime. I've never felt that much hate in one place, palpable, um, in one place ever. In that the Kansas fans, they were not going to let Missouri get out of that gym that day without beating them one last time and reminding them you know, who, who, who their daddy was. Did things and, uh, control at all? Did, did the fans get out of control? I, I, no, it didn't. It no. didn't get violent or anything like that, but it was just the noise. I've still got a, a video on my phone somewhere where I taped the last few seconds, and you can't hear yourself think. We've all been at games like that, and I, I've been at Allen Fieldhouse many times, one of the great meccas in the country, but I've never, ever seen it like that or heard it like that. It's hard to describe. Well, we go from the flea kicker, <laughs> Which leads to Tom Osborne, you know, getting a parting gift, as they say. Nebraska says, no, that was legit. And Michigan says, parting gift. But what that leads to really is the next year was the bowl championship series. And for me, when I look at it, the evolution of college football, that's what really changed because the emphasis became so much on the national championship, where it used to be when your conference, go to your bowl game, if it works out. Um, you know, you might be national champion. It just seemed like things went from pride in your conference and region to we got to win the national championship. I remember uh, the old Texas coach, Daryl Royal. Uh, I, I had the pleasure of speaking with him a few different times over the years. And one time he told me that, you know, he won three national. He was voted national champion. Yeah. That's the Longhorns three times, you know, back in his career. You know, he coached from the late 50s to like 76. But he, uh, he said one time that they won a national title, he didn't even realize it, that the writers came up to him <laughs> and asked him for a comment. And he's like, what? And he had no idea that, yeah, the poll is out. You've been voted number one. Can, we're just looking for a comment. He had no idea. But that <laughs> that's how it was. That's how it was. It wasn't that wasn't the, the impetus for everybody to win the national championship. It was it was just different priorities. By the way, Daryl Royal, I had a great time with him. I was in Austin once, and I, I got to visit with him at some country club, and I spent like three hours with him. And uh, the, there was a couple things I remember. He was he was drinking beer. We were both drinking beer, I got <laughs> to admit. But he was drinking out of a styrofoam cup. And I remember I said, Daryl, what— why are you drinking out of a styrofoam cup? And he said, never let them see what you're drinking, son. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Les, Les Miles told me yeah. when he, and this is a more recent story, he said, I never drink in public. Yeah. You know, not, I don't even pick up a cup because then people can speculate, especially in the social media. Right, and this right, is what yeah. he said 
when he was at LSU. So well, one, they, at, one, at one point, the waiter came over and said, hey, coach, do you want another one? And he picked up a styrofoam cup, and he held it out, and he was looking at it for a few seconds. And he took his finger, and he took his fingernail, and he carved a little line <laughs> about halfway. And he said, top her off about right there. <laughs> A great, a great, um, a great story about Texas and Daryl Royal. In the the last or the title they won in '69, they go to Arkansas and win this game of the century, 15-14, and that was a game where Richard Nixon flew in and gave them a plaque um, and, and gave, like awarded them the national championship right after the game. Like I, you know, I don't so we can blame Nixon for all this change. We right? can blame, we can blame <laughs> yeah. whatever you see now. We can blame him. <laughs> but it did get, it did change, and 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 when you saw like in the mid two thousands, you you started having almost like celebrity teams. You went from guys like the Boz and Dion and the old ball coach, like you hit these characters. But then you started having like celebrity teams and the USC Trojans under Pete Carroll. That that became just way different than what a what a popular college team was like, right? You, you were around yeah. those guys, yeah, yeah, and that was the case. Um, Look, whenever USC's good, LA becomes a USC city. Even when the Rams were good, if, if USC was good, it was it was a USC town, or at least I'm told. But uh, obviously, they had it going uh, a mini dynasty under Pete Carroll in the 2000s. There, I, I clearly remember walking off the field with Matt Leinart after they'd beaten Notre Dame one year at the Coliseum, and I, I ran ahead of him to get. To, to just do this image in my mind. And it was him with, you know, a couple of people on each side of him walking him off. And he had this look in his eyes like, well, this is what it's like to own a town. Mm. And that's exactly <laughs> what had happened. If you read and know and talk to those guys now, Reggie Bush, Matt Leinart, all those guys, um, they, they owned L.A. And whatever excess there was to it, I mean, we all know they went on probation and and those things happened. But I, I don't think I've ever seen in a, in a major market like that. And it was fun. It was cool. It was cool to be around those guys. Uh, Pete Carroll made it fun. Uh, he made it fun for the media. He made it fun for the players. And How? In what ways? What do you mean by that? He, because he, was, he, he does it now with, uh, with the Seahawks or did earlier. Uh, he would make his players available. And that was a tradition. It's a tradition at USC today. Uh, you could sit down and have lunch with them at a training table. Um, his press conferences were, were really he, – he gave intelligent answers. And he was just a cool guy to be around. He had that vibe. Like this this is more than – it was like almost this is more than a college team. This is something you want to be around. And that's what they're trying to get back now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, I, I suspect it's like that when Notre Dame's good. But Notre Dame's in northern Indiana. It's not L.A. There's something to be said for that. All right. Well, we have, uh, you know, a lot of things have changed in college football, and it's gotten much bigger, and things things are different than they were, say, in the 84 when you started covering the sport. But at the same time, you still find a way to get in the middle of it all, Dennis, with your your <laughs> great coverage with uh, CBS Sports. Uh, you always seem to be, like, right in the middle of things. I mean, you were you mentioned Les Miles. I think you were in the locker room once. That's <laughs> <laughs> my favorite. Yeah, so what happened? You were in the locker room, and uh, the game literally just ended? Yeah, I don't, I don't even remember the opponent. I think they had beaten Georgia. It was a big win. And uh, there's one place you can get to the postgame – at, at LSU, after games, everybody has to go, go through the player tunnel. And there was like a room off to the side where they do the post-game interviews. 
So everybody has to go in there, players, recruits, parents, coaches, media, all at once. So it's, so this, there's this big crush if you, if you do it at a certain time. And Matt Hayes uh, was a good, good friend of mine, and I think he was working for, might have been with Bleacher Report then, I don't remember, but we got trapped. We literally were, were just carried by this crowd. There was nothing we could do. We started going. And we're looking at each other. Oh, my God, we're going into the locker room because that's where the parents and the coaches and the players and the recruits went after the game. And we just kind of looked at each other and said, don't say a word. Don't let anybody see you. Just act like you're supposed to be here. That's right. You're supposed to be there. So we stood off to the side and they immediately gave out game balls. Did you get one, Dennis? I did not get one. But the first game, uh, Les Miles gave out the game balls. And one of the captains comes up and goes, hold, 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 hold up, coach. Hold up, coach. He, he holds up a ball above his head, and he goes, and we all know the criticism, Les Miles, crazy Les Miles. You know, there the was Mad always, Hatter. The Mad Hatter, always something to criticize him for. He said, Coach, this is for you and all that bullshit they say about you. And the, the <laughs> place just erupts. It just erupts. It just goes, yeah, and they're throwing stuff around. And he, and he takes the ball, and he waits till it's very, it's absolutely quiet, and in typical less fashion, he looks up and he says, I humbly accept. <laughs> <laughs> and then another crescendo. But I love less. I mean, some of those some of those post games with him or, you know, this is this is where opponents dreams come to die. What yeah. other coach says that? Nick yeah. Saban doesn't say that. <laughs> hey, speaking of Saban, weren't you swept up in the crowd at the uh, kick six at, uh, at the yeah. Auburn game? That I mean, we're talking about a famous play in college football. That might be. That's got to be in the ranking for number one all-time play in college yeah. football. In, so, in 13. But, you were, but you were in the middle of the crowd somehow, right? I was. I was on the sideline waiting for the game to end. And at the end... Uh, this the, is at Auburn. At Auburn and, and uh, Oklahoma, um, sorry, Alabama's going to try a 60-yard field goal, 57-yard field goal, something like that. You know, it was, it was either going to be that or it was going to be overtime. Um, and I started to tape it with my phone my cell phone like oh, this would be cool if I get this on tape because I was behind sort of behind the kicker if you could only and, have that cell phone and tape that indoor oh, soccer game right well right <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that, you wouldn't want to see some of those things <laughs> uh, so he kicks it they get ready to kick it and I for some reason I turned it off or it got turned off or I jostled or something well he, he he kicks it, and obviously we know Chris Davis catches it in the end zone and runs it back. And we were on the sideline, and as it was happening, it was like when you see these NBA players after a teammate dunks or any player after a teammate dunks, and they're holding each other back. I had my arms out like this, mm. you know, like like what am what am I doing? Who am I holding back? You know, I'm just <laughs> what an idiot. And so then it seems like the entire uh, stadium comes on the field. You just all you saw was the front, the person in front of your face. There was no perspective. You just knew there was this giant celebration going on, and so somehow, at that point, I was panicking. I didn't know if I was going to be able to get up back to the press box and file, because I time stood still. Because you, how long is it going to take to get from here to there? Well, the first thing I thought was I'm closer to the Alabama locker room right now, so I'll go there. If I get nothing else, I can get the losers. And I went and, and got Nick and, and reaction and everything and came out. And it was still the same. So I fought, literally fought, hand fought, 120 yards from the back of one end zone to the other 
where the Auburn locker room was and got everything from there. And I think filed at 1.30 in the morning, probably not the best, uh, most timely story. But it, you, you feared for your safety because you didn't know where this was going. You didn't know where they were going to take you. Right. I mean, I think it speaks to like the, almost a great metaphor for the growth of college football. Yeah. And, you know, and where it where it was and where it is now. And you've pretty much been there every step of the way. And uh, we've really enjoyed this. You've, you've put us right there with the coaches and the players. And that's kind of the aim of what we're trying to do here is capture those moments that, that you were there behind the scenes. And we really appreciate this, Dennis. Todd, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Pressbox Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcomed here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando, producer Sarah Wilgrub and her audio engineer Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Get ready, race fans, because the ultimate NASCAR experience is about to hit the airwaves. Welcome to Pit Pass NASCAR, the podcast that takes you deep into the heart-pounding world of NASCAR racing. Join us each week as we bring you closer to the NASCAR action with exclusive interviews and all the news and rumors you need with your favorite drivers, team members, and industry insiders. So whether you're a fan of super speedways, short ovals, or road racing, or you've just watched Talladega Nights, Pit Pass NASCAR is the podcast you've been waiting for. Get ready to fuel your passion for NASCAR like never before. Subscribe now to Pit Pass NASCAR on your favorite podcast platform or head to evergreenpodcast.com and get ready to join us. Launching in the fall on Evergreen Podcast Network. Follow us on social media at pitpass underscore NASCAR to stay up to date with everything you need to know about the podcast.